Todd was a blessed young man. He was born to two parents who loved him. When he was a child, they took care of every one of his needs. They cleaned up every scraped knee, were there for every single milestone. They held his hand as he learned to walk. They introduced him to solid food. They cried as he went in for his first day of kindergarten. He could find every single one of his school pictures hanging on their fridge. They never missed a sporting event or a school concert. They tucked him in at night as long as he would allow it. They made sure that he knew that they loved him. They taught him the way of the Lord. And they prayed every night that he would walk in it. They also, being a wealthy family and lavish in love, set up a trust fund for Todd. Though they wanted him to excel in school and find a job he loved, they also ensured that once he turned 18 years old, he would never have to worry about financial matters for the rest of his life. And Todd took that money when he was 18. He was thankful. He, was, he promised to take care of it. He promised it wouldn't change who he was or his passions or his motivations. Todd took that money and he moved away. And over time, he bought himself a large house and fancy cars and all the best things. He spent his money on whatever would make him happy at the moment. Todd took his parents' money and he used it in ways that it was never intended to be used. Squandered it. Used it on all kinds of awful things. And what about his parents? Well, they would try to call him. And he would say he didn't have time to talk. He didn't have time to visit. He didn't need to see them. They would say, Todd, don't you remember how much we love you? How we, how we raised you? How we cared for you? How we longed to have a close relationship with you? And after many calls and pleas, Todd finally got sick of their questions and told them the words they dreaded to hear. I have everything I need without you. I don't need you and I don't want you in my life anymore. Todd is the nation of Israel in the book of Hosea. Todd is... I'm sorry, I'm going to move this because I want to see the longs and the keolas. <laughs> Todd is each of us apart from the grace of God. This morning I want us to consider from the book of Hosea, we've been thankful for the grace of God. Throughout the service, we, we worship God for His grace. This morning, I want us to consider from the book of Hosea the horror of grace abused. We're in week three of a four-week series through the book of Hosea. In week one, we focused on chapters one through three, an overview of the whole message of Hosea, the message of a wayward bride, the nation of Israel, who had been unfaithful to her covenant to God and faced a painful future. But that would not be the end of the story because the unfaithful bride would, in her pain, 
be wooed by her husband, allured by her husband, and brought back into relationship with him. The Lord called Hosea to be a living example and portrayal of that. Last week, we zeroed in on God's charges against his people, the promise of punishment for their rebellion, and the hope of a new covenant. For today, we're going to zero in, a little bit of a bird's eye view, but we're going to zero in one specific aspect of the message of Hosea in chapters not, chapter 9, verse 10, through chapter 13, verse 16. We are going to zero in on the abuse of God's grace. Simple, simple outline. I tried to come up with a crafty alliteration. I got none. So I'm going to go with this. We're going to talk about the rampant abuse of God's grace and the only hope that people have left. And as with previous weeks, uh, point one is going to be far longer than point two. I want to read the whole passage this morning. I didn't do it the last week, uh, and it's going to take us about seven minutes to read through. It's good to hear the Word of God, though. The Word of God teaches and instructs us. And so if I get, a, get to say a few less words, that's okay. We're going to let the Word of the Lord speak to us. Let me pray for us before we read. Heavenly Father, uh, we must hear from you this morning, not from me. It is your Spirit who gives life. And so may it be that by the power of your Word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, through the proclamation of the truth, and we pray, Father, that, that the Gospel would also be clearly proclaimed this morning because your Son, Jesus, is found in all of the Scriptures that our hearts would be transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Lord, that we would have receptive hearts to hear where this remnant of abuse of grace may still reside in us in places. Lord, expose us. Change us. Lord, if there are some in this room who have never believed in Christ unto salvation, may it be that today would be the day of salvation. You are a saving and gracious God. Do so for your name's sake. Lord, give light to our eyes as we read your word. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Starting in 9.10. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. But they came to Baal Peor and consecrated them things, themselves to the thing of shame became detestable like the thing they loved. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow. But Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Give them, O Lord. What will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they have not listened to, to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. 
As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. For now they will say, we have no king. For we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? They utter mere words. And with empty oaths they make covenants. So judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble. The calf of Beth-Avon, its people mourn for it. And so do its idolatrous priests, those who rejoiced over it and over its glory. For it has departed from them. The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. The high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars. And they shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. From the days of Gibeah you have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued. Shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gibeah? When I please, I will discipline them. And nations shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. Ephraim was, as a, tra- was a trained calf that loved to thresh, and I spared her fair neck. But I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow. Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. You have plowed iniquity. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. Therefore, the tumult of war shall arise among your people and all your fortresses shall be destroyed as Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle. Mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At the dawn of the king of Israel, at dawn the king of Israel shall utterly be cut off. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms. But they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, as the, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Admah? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion, 
When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel. And in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with God and the angel, or with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel. And there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts. The Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice. And wait continually for your God. A merchant in whose hands are false balances. He loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, Ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they cannot find in me the iniquity of sin. I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. If there is iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. In Gilgal, they shall sacrifice bulls. Their altars also are like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. Jacob fled to the land of Aram, and there Israel served for a wife. And for a wife he guarded sheep. By a prophet, the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt. And by a prophet, he was guarded. Ephraim has given her bitter provocation. So his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin more and more and make, make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifices... Kiss calves, therefore they shall be like the morning mist, or like the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor, or like smoke from a window. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought, but when they grazed, they became full. They were filled and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. I am to them, so I am to them like a lion. Like a leopard, I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast and there I will devour them like a lion as a wild beast would rip them open. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are your rulers, those of whom you said, Give me a king and princes? I, give you, I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. 
The pangs of childbirth come for him, but he is an unwise son. For at the right time he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. This is the word of the Lord. And that is a hard word. That is a hard word. There is a lot in there. And I told you this last week. It is a hard word. The middle of Hosea is a lot of hard words. The reason why is because the heart of man is desperately wicked. The grace of God was never meant to be an excuse for wicked living. And the Lord uses in these chapters a few images to outline His lavish love and grace toward Israel and to portray their rebellion against Him. So keep your Bibles open. We'll flip to a few different ones in that section. In 9.10 and in 9.13, the Lord compares His people Israel to grapes in the wilderness. The first fruit on the fig tree. And in 13, a young palm planted in the meadow. What's the meaning of this? It means that he found them. He took them in. He gave birth to the nation of Israel. He was the one who created the nation of Israel. What was special about Abraham or Isaac or Jacob? What do you think? Anything special about them? He chose them. Nothing was special about them. As the forefathers of the great nation of Israel, nothing was special about them. It was the Lord who made them great. It was the Lord who built them up. It was the Lord who had fulfilled His promises. He loved and cared for His people Israel when they were young. But it was not long before they despised Him. They sacrificed to idols. They performed detestable acts. They led their own children to do the same things. I ask you, how is this possible in the face of such great grace and mercy to turn around and dishonor the Lord like this? I think you know. I think we all know. How can we turn around and spit in the face of the one who gave us everything? I think we know. The Lord expresses disgust and anger at his people to the point of saying, did you note this in 915? He began to hate them. What does that mean? That he began to hate them. Well, it cannot mean 
based on the surrounding context, that he doesn't care about them anymore, right? He does care about them. Did you get his heart in that passage? Even in the midst of judgment, that is supposed, we're supposed to see this over and over and over in Hosea. Maybe as we read through this text, you're like, wait, all right, so is God, is he being merciful to them, or is he judging them, or is he angry or happy, or saving them, or killing them? What is he doing? And remember the big grand theme of Hosea, right? He had loved them. They had gone wayward. He would judge them as a means by which he could call them back to himself. That's the theme repeated over and over and over in this, in this uh, book. So here we have the Lord saying, I began to hate them. It does not mean he no longer cares for them. It does not mean he does not love them, but he does say he is horrified at their actions. He is horrified at their unrepentant hearts. And his coming work to rescue them will come through a severed relationship for a time. Look at the end of chapter 9. It says, I'm going to drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. They will be stricken, dried up, rejected, wanderers among the nations. He would sever the relationship in a way so that he might heal his people. And it may well be this morning that you are going through a painful season of life and the Lord is shouting to you, wake up, return to me. This is a great act of mercy on God's part. Not everyone who suffers does so because they did something specific wrong. I want to be clear about that. But the Lord does shout to us in our trials and pain. Maybe there are some in this room who are going astray and the Lord is using pain to wake you up, to say, turn around. Some do suffer because of their specific rebellion against the Lord. The Lord also compares Israel to a luxuriant vine. So they were a grape in the wilderness, right? And then in 10.1, he calls them a luxuriant vine vine. They were prosperous, right? A luxuriant vine. They weren't grapes in the wilderness anymore. They were just grapes everywhere. Luxuriant vine, prosperous, productive. I said this in week one. This prophecy is coming at a time when Israel was as prosperous and wealthy as it had ever been as a nation. And he's saying, hey, you're a luxuriant vine now. Look at you. Look at you. And what did they do with all their prosperity? Where did their prosperity come from, first of all? Church answer. Good. Yep. God. Yep. Their prosperity came from the Lord, and their prosperity had led them to wander. As his country improved, he says, he improved his pillars. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. That's what Israel did with its prosperity. 
They had false hearts. At one time, Israel had demanded a king so that they could be like the nations around them. Now they're saying, we have no king, for we don't fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? We don't need anything. We got everything we need. Everything we, yeah, even though everything we have came from the Lord. We don't need a thing from you, Lord. Whether you acknowledge it or not, everything you have comes from the Lord. 10.3 struck me this week as a, as a perfect anthem for our society, right? We have no king. We do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? We don't need anything. I can get anything I want, anytime I want, at the snap of a finger. I can use everything I have to do whatever I don't. Who are you to tell me what to do with what I have? I don't need a king. I don't need a God. I'm in control. The thought that anything bad could happen or that they depended upon anyone else was far from their minds. And it reminded me of Jesus' words to the church in Laodicea in the book of Revelation. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing what? That you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Such was the case here. If you live your life trusting in yourself, trusting in your riches, trusting in your strength, trusting in your wisdom, trusting in your ability to provide for yourself, what is going to remain when that foundation crumbles? Will that foundation stand in the day of the Lord? This luxuriant vine was about to be chopped down. A stronger king was going to come and take their wealth. Going to take it all from them. And their puny little king, did you see that in 10.7? Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. Their, their puny little king was going to be destroyed like a twig in a tsunami. Ripped apart. All their altars were going to be destroyed. And that was good. they were going to bear thorns and thistles. Just like the original curse on Adam, right? Thorns and thistles. Cursed like their forefather Adam. They would beg for destruction. They would say, fall on us, right? Fall on us hills. Cover us mountains. We see that in the book of Revelation too. We see it in Isaiah too. That people will beg, spare me from this. The Lord also compares Israel to a trained calf. He had made the yoke easy on Israel, made her work a prosperous joy, but it would be no more. It was time for hard labor, time for the soil to be broken up, for war to arise in the nation. And we're going to get back to chapter 11 in a few minutes. But as we go through chapters 12 and 13, we see the case outlined more and more against both Israel and Judah. Judah would be wrapped up in this as well. The Lord uses the life of Jacob as a picture of what has happened. I wish I had more time to go into that. I'm not going to be able to. And what will happen for the nation of Israel. 
He reminds them that he had met with Jacob. He had preserved Jacob in the wilderness. He is the God of Jacob. He calls Jacob's people to return to him as their forefather had done. But here again we see the arrogance and the foolish self-sufficiency of Israel. Look at 12.8. Ephraim has said, Ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself in all my labors. They cannot find in me iniquity or sin. Wow. This is the boastfulness of the people of Israel at this point. I'm rich. I don't need anything. You can't help me. And by the way, you can't find any sin in me either. This is the epitome of arrogance. And I want you to hear this today, friends. If you're here this morning saying that you have no need of God's grace, if you are here saying that you have no sin, the Word of God says that you are calling God a liar. The Lord says that all have sinned and fall short of His glorious standard. That all are in need of His grace and mercy. That all are in need of forgiveness and cleansing. And that is found in returning to Him. Where is forgiveness found? Only in Him. Only in turning to Him. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. The one who says they have no sin, they need no forgiveness, they need nothing, they were going to find out too late that they were wrong. And Israel, of all people, should have known that. But here they were, boasting in their flawless record and their self-acquired wealth. When you ask the general public, right, you're going to be all right if you stand before the Lord one day? You're going to be good? He's going to let you in? What do they say? Yes. Why? Good. Good person. I'm not Hitler. It's my standard of what a good person is, right? I'm not Adolf Hitler. No, there's worse. That's right. And we do well to, to remind people that is not God's standard, is it? All have sinned and fall short of God's glorious standard. All are in need of grace. Your riches will profit you nothing in the day of judgment, right? What are you going to say? God, remember all the houses I built? Look at how much I have in my savings account when I died. What's that to him? He gave it all to you. He needs nothing from you. You can give him a million dollars. He's got more than that. He owns it all. And these people have become a people who are saying, we don't need him anymore. We're set. We're set not just for here, but we're set for eternity because we're good. We're rich. Happy Father's Day. You don't want me to walk off that stage. <laughs> Maybe we needed some co comic relief, huh? 
These were people who were uh, sacrificing. This is the caliber of, of their goodness. They, they were sacrificing their own children. That's how good they were. Kissing calves, a reference to their idol worship and their trust in false idols to provide for them that which only God could provide. That's how good they were. They worshipped the creature rather than the creator. They, they uh, worshipped other gods and through that they died, he says. They died. They were dead. Chapter 13, 4 to 6, I want to read it again. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me. And besides me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they grazed, they became full, they were filled, and their heart was lifted up, therefore they forgot me. I'm the one who gave you all this stuff. And when you took it, you forgot. And you said, I don't need you anymore. I gave them everything, but they took everything I gave them. They got full on it, and they forgot me. These words are so indicting. How easily our hearts forget. How easily we are caught up in everything else in the world being more important. How, how easily we are caught up in taking the blessings of God and lavishing them on ourselves. Lavishing them on things that maybe are even used to serve our idolatry. And everything we have comes from Him. And is meant to be used for His glory. We need to see where this heart remains in us and repent. But in chapter 11, we see the most poignant picture of all. The words on the front of your bulletins. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. So stop there for a minute and hear the summary of everything we've talked about. The Lord had given them everything, and they took everything that he gave them and worshipped other gods. And I am saying the same things over and over and over again. You know why? Because the book of Hosea says the same things over and over and over again. And we are a people who need to hear the same things over and over and over again. Because we are quick to forget. And in the next couple of verses of chapter 11, do you, do, when you read these chapter, or this chapter, do, do you feel the poignancy of it? Do, verse 3, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. What a beautiful picture, right? You remember, you know, teaching, teaching your babies, holding their hands when they take their first steps. The Lord, is, he's given you this fatherly imagery. He's saying, I was the one who held you by the hand. I was the one who brought you out of the wilderness. I was with you. I was healing up your scraped knees. I took them up by the arms, but they did not know that I healed them. They didn't know I was the one who was healing their scraped knees. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws and I bent down to them and fed them. Beautiful picture. 
the loving Father who taught them to walk. He held them in his arms. He bandaged their wounds. He led them to safe places. He made their burdens easy. He fed them. And they despised him. They forgot him. And his last recourse was punishment for violation of their covenant. If you have time this afternoon, take a look at Deuteronomy 28, verses 15 to 68. The covenant promises the curses that will come upon Israel if they are unfaithful to their side of the Mosaic covenant. If they do not keep the law of God. And now God has said it is time to take you to task for your repeated violations of our covenant. I have loved you. I've showered you with grace and blessing. And you have dishonored me. And he uses some very violent and vicious language in these chapters. He speaks of himself as a lion who will tear them open and devour them. He says he will destroy them because they are against him. He will take away their king. Their sin will be stored up and remembered. He speaks of horrifying things happening to the inhabitants of Israel, oldest to youngest. How could this be? How could this be from the God of love? Where's the good shepherd? Where is God is love? I want to say a couple things to that. First, what the Lord is doing here is showing Israel that the natural course of events apart from His divine mercy is about to play out. You want no mercy? You're about to find out what no mercy looks like. Remember, that's one of Hosea's children's names, right? No mercy. You want to be treated like not my people? You're about to find out what it's like to not be my people. You have no idea how good I have been to you, even while you were not acknowledging me. How many of us in this room can testify to that? We have no idea how good God has been to us. Even when we think we have an idea. How many of us have that as our testimony? We had no idea how patient God was being with us when we abused His kindness. When we loved other gods more than we loved Him. How patient was He? How loving was He? Again and again. Second, these acts of judgment are meant to awaken repentance. He's going to hand them over that He might wake them up. They are loving. If someone is headed down the path to death and they don't listen to gentle rebuke or words of truth, what is the most loving thing to do? It may well be to let them see what the consequences of their actions are. In extreme instances, it may be to let them experience the consequences, the ex consequences of those actions. Experience them. Out of love. That they would wake up. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But it is far better to do so and feel the weight of our rejection on this side of eternity than it would be on the next side of eternity. So I leave us with this question this morning. I promise, significantly short. Is there any hope for the people of Israel? Is there any hope for us? I mean, we're not any different than these people, are we, by, by nature? Are we any better than them? 
Is there any hope for abusers of grace and wayward sinners? Yes, there is. In the midst of righteous judgment and painful discipline, even here. And by the way, I'm really excited. Next week's chapter 14, we're going to be focusing on the, the love and the open arms of our Father. Okay? <laughs> because it's true. He is an open-armed, loving, gracious God. But we must first come face-to-face -face with our sin and our rejection and our rebellion. But hope is found even here in the unchanging character of our Heavenly Father. With a verse as terrible as 11.7, My people are bent on turning away from me. And though they call out to the Most High, He shall not raise them up at all. It is quite a wonder that that verse is followed by 11, 8, and 9. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. What? He's not going to come in wrath? This all sounds like wrath to me. No, brothers and sisters. It is not wrath to the extent that they deserve. It is discipline that they might return. What wonderful words. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? These were his chosen people. He would not destroy as man destroys because he is God and not man. They will go through pain, the just reward for the rebellion, but this pain would ultimately be for cleansing. For Israel, it would be exile followed by return. But in here, we see foreshadowed an even greater redemption yet to come. Did you notice something in 1314? Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Does, does some of that sound familiar to you? I feel like you've heard that somewhere else. In Hosea, that verse is God's way of saying, open the floodgates of wrath and pain upon these people that they might turn back. Cleanse them through pain. Cleanse them through suffering. I will no longer have a compassion that holds back these just judgments. But a day is pointed to where this will become the victory cry of the people of God. We too are a people more than deserving of God's wrath. Not just earthly wrath. Not just earthly punishment. But eternal wrath. We have rejected we have rebelled against God. We have misused all that he has given us. But in his great love, the Lord has sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Israel was the vine that bore thorns and thistles, but Jesus was the true vine. He bore only good fruit all the days of his earthly life. His life was marked by obedience. He took the good gifts of God and the bitter providences of God, and in all of them he gave glory to his Father in heaven. Jesus faced the torrent of wrath that we deserved. God's wrath, as he died on a Roman cross, falsely convicted 
And in doing so, he bore all of our sin. The sins of all who would believe in him, born at the cross of Jesus Christ. He died to bear the wrath of God that we deserve. And more than that, on the third day, he was raised from the dead, truly and physically. In this resurrection, Jesus triumphantly declared God's everlasting victory over death in the grave. Far, far from compassion being hidden from God's eyes, in the resurrection of Christ, we find that the full vent of death and hell was poured out on Jesus, that the undeserving grace abusers may have the hope of eternal life. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the immortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was what Israel was not, and because of that, he became the source of hope to all who believe, Jew and Gentile, all who deserve only the wrath of God, will find that his heart of compassion toward his people is still strong. He will not give up his people. He will not give up on those who are his. He will draw them with his cords of kindness. He will rescue. He will forgive. Sometimes it's through great pain of our own that he opens our eyes. But always it is through the undeserved pain of his son that he rescues and secures his people forever. If you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, I pray that this morning would be the morning of faith, that you would see his sacrifice is sufficient for the forgiveness of all your abuses of God's grace, all your wandering hearts. Every time you have taken what he's given you and said, I'm going to use it for myself. I am God. There is forgiveness to be found in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ, where your forgetfulness continues to be revealed, repent and seek mercy through Jesus. Rejoice that he has defeated sin and death and hell. When we were at our most unlovable, he did that for us. His eternal purposes and his eternal love for his people will stand. And next week, we get to zero in on the loving heart of our Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for grace. The word itself tells us we are undeserving. We are not worthy of your kindness to us, but you are abundant in mercy. May it be that we would seek the grace that only you can provide. Grace that saves. Grace that cleanses. Grace that is our help in time of need. Thank you, Jesus, for bearing the full vent of the wrath of God against sin for grace abusers like us. 
Thank you, Father, that you do not give up on your people. May we rejoice in this together today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.